Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Well, I guess it's time for us to get started. I'll remind you that I warned you last week that I was teaching again, so if you're here, I'll assume that's because you want to be, or you had nowhere else to go. We're actually starting a new quarter. Um, We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah, which, I'll be honest, I don't know that I'd paid a whole lot of attention to the book of Nehemiah until the summer quarter. Um, I was lucky enough to get to fill in on a couple different Sundays, I can't remember if it was two or three, for um, Keith Anderson, he was teaching the college class, and the college class was looking at the book of Nehemiah, and they were using a very interesting study looking at the leadership of Nehemiah. And so I'll admit that before last summer, I had not spent a ton of time really studying or thinking about Nehemiah, and I certainly hadn't read through it from the standpoint of the incredible leadership that one sees in Nehemiah and the example that he sets. And the reason I found that so fascinating is I fully admit I'm a little bit of a self-help junkie and a leadership junkie and, you know, all that, whatever the, not always the new fad, but mostly because I don't like them, to be honest. A lot of them, there's very few of them that I actually enjoy, but you'll see all these fads that'll go through business and, and other stuff on this leadership or that leadership trend. And what I find interesting about the book of Nehemiah is you can find the roots of most of those. I'm a firm believer that the world loves biblical and godly wisdom, as long as you don't tell them it's from God or came from the Bible. And in the book of Nehemiah, there's a lot of that. So the real introduction is actually next week, because James is going to do the real introduction. So I was pondering, so how do I do an introduction to the introduction for James while he's uh, preaching away this Sunday? And so what I decided to do is I want to go through and look at, we're going to walk through some bits and pieces of the first, you know, four or five chapters or so. Um, We're going to pull out some concepts. We're going to do what might seem like a little bit of putting things backwards. We're trying to go find, hey, here's this concept, let's go find it there. But I got to thinking about it, and I think it makes sense. Let's lay that groundwork now so that over the rest of the quarter, as James is going through more of the history, telling us about the time, the man himself, and walking through the book, we can realize how incredible a man Nehemiah really was from the beginning as as we're looking at this, and that there really is this incredible continuity and plan and flow that goes throughout this entire book. So that was my thought. I asked James, hey, what do you want me to cover? He said, whatever you want. So you're lost. (laughs) That's, That's what I'd like for us to do today as we walk through this. So before we do that, can we put our one chart up, Chris? I've used this chart before, and I realize you can't read it. It's a bit of an eye chart. It's hard to read if you're staring at it right in front of your screen. But what I really like about it is it's this great layout of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And it lays all of the prophets on top of it, you can see the prophets to Israel, the prophets to Judah. You can see the kings of Babylon coming in, Assyria, and then Babylon with the different, you know, um, 
captivities and, and the other issues that were, that were encountered. And today, I just want to point out where it is we're talking about is occurring. Because we have all this great Old Testament history, and we're talking about, on the very last side, that last arrow pointing down from those three separate deportations and three separate returns that to Babylon and then the return, we're talking about that very last arrow at the very end. So chronologically, we're at the end of things. But to put that in context, we're still talking 2,500 years ago. Okay? So to me, what's amazing is that I can go look at something that's 2,500 years old, like the book of Nehemiah, and I can find example after example after example of leadership that I should be applying every day at work. That I should be applying in any group that I'm working in or working with. So don't tell me the Bible's outdated and doesn't apply to anybody anymore. Because we're going to see some pretty clear examples. And it's not very hard to see the context and how they apply. So that's what we're going to look at. I just wanted to point out that all this great history, the minor prophets, the major prophets, we're all the way over here at the end. Okay? So let's just start in chapter 1. We're going to look quite a bit at chapter 1 and 2, and then we're going to pick some other verses as we go through. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Shizlev, in the 20th year, as I was at Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judea, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So it's interesting. Right here at the beginning, we find Nehemiah. He's in 20 years into something. We're not sure exactly what yet. We're going to find out here in, in just a few minutes that it's the 20th year of something that's going on. He's off at a stronghold at a citadel somewhere else, and he's asking because one of his brethren comes about those who are left in Jerusalem. Now, if we put that in a little bit of context and cheat, get a little bit ahead, we know we're talking at the very end of that whole timeline. So it's been a long time since Jews were carried off out of Jerusalem, and he's still concerned and worried about what's going on to those people. The very first thing out of the gate we see out of Nehemiah is a concern for others. Because he wants news of these people, what's going on, how are they doing, how are those who escaped, how are they faring? That's how the, our entire introduction to the man, that's how it begins, is with him being worried about this. He isn't there himself, but he still has a, very much an interest and concern in learning about what's going on in the homeland of his people. In verse 3, he gets the report. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the providence are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Okay, so clearly the news ain't good, right? Not a lot of good things to report if you're starting off with, well, they're there, and they're in great distress and reproach. The walls are broken down, and the gates have been burned. So it's a, it's a shell. It's, it's a heap of its former self. I think one thing that we probably need to point out, because again, this is 2,500 years old, give or take. Walls and gates are a big deal. 
We take, that advantage, we take that for granted now, but let me ask all of you, anybody here lock their doors at night when they go to bed? Now, they didn't have locks on every door. They locked the city up at night was how they did it. But now they don't even have that. Okay, I'm going to take my first aside that I wasn't planning on. We talk about how the United States is somewhat dividing into tribalism. Right? But we talk about political spectrums, right, Glenn? When we talk about that, people pull in these different tribes. If you've ever been into a culture that's truly tribal, you don't just worry about the people in the next town disagreeing with you at night. You worry about them attacking you at night. When I visited Papua New Guinea, I've mentioned that a number of times in classes, but the people that lived outside the mine site that I was at with the 12-foot-high wall with the razor wire on the top of it, tribal warfare was still, is today, to this day, still legal in Papua New Guinea. That's how the central government in Port Mosby keeps control. They let the tribes to continue to live as tribes as they do. And they will have out-and-out wars with each other. And it's this guy accidentally kills a guy in my family, so my family goes and kills a couple guys in his family, and the next thing you know, it's whole tribes attacking each other. Okay? So the fact that the walls are destroyed and the gates are removed and that they are in great distress and reproach means basically they're being attacked. They're in distress from their neighbors and they have no way to defend themselves. That's the situation they're in. Verse 4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So Nehemiah, after he gets this news about his brethren in this far land, sits down and throws himself a little pity party. Now, that's, that's not what's happening here at all, in any way, shape, size, or form. I've actually heard this taught that that's what he did, but that is not what is going on here at all. He wept and mourned, okay, for many days. Now, depending on, I don't know, whichever counselor or psychologist or school you want to go, we've all heard there's these different grieving processes people go through, right? I personally like the seven steps because they're a little more hopeful by the time you get to the end. So the way I found it, the seven steps were shock and denial, pain and guilt, anger and bargaining, depression, an upward turn, reconstruction and working through, acceptance and hope. Okay? We're told that he sat down, wept and mourned for many days. I think he was going through this whole process. I don't think I've ever even told my wife this before, but... I have a client over in Research Park. I'm an engineer. And I was in there working one day on a test set. I had several projects in a row where I was helping them with some test sets. And they came in, and the customer had come in and changed a whole bunch of stuff. And it was going to make all these different things have to get tweaked. And none of it made any sense. And apparently, I came in, and I don't know what I said, but I made some comment. And then I sat there, and I don't know exactly what I did left next. But I do know that one of the program admins, Glenn, was standing there, and she looked at me and she goes, all right, that's the first three, can we get on to the fourth? And I said, what are you talking about? She goes, well, every time we have a problem, you start with a snarky comment, then you do this, then you do something else, and then you tell us what the solutions are. (laughs) She had figured out my process. I was mourning as I went through another change and what I thought had been done. We all do this. We go through these processes. It's become such a running joke in that group that now when people send me an email, it's, hold on, I'm still on stage three. 
right? But we do this as humans, and it makes sense. And it, it seems perfectly rational that Nehemiah sat down, and the first thing was shock and denial. No, God would never let this happen to the great city of Jerusalem. Then feeling pain and guilt. I'm one of those people, and I'm not there to help them. Anger and bargaining, depression, upward turn, reconstruction, working through. But by the end, acceptance and hope. And the reason why I think he was actually working through these and formulating a plan is because we're told that he was doing this with fasting and prayer before the God of heaven for many days. We're only given a very short portion of what those prayers probably were. But it's interesting that he sat there for days and gone through this process. And when he gets, I believe that the prayer that comes starting in verse 5 is at the end of this process. Just with the way, at least, at least it's the end with the way the story is recounted to us. But in verse 5 we read, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out from the farthest parts of the heaven, remember what's going on here, there's been three captivities carried away, this is the Babylonian captivity, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, let your, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So he's got this entire prayer, and what he's praying is he's thought this through. He's thought this through that he remembers the promises that were made to Moses. And he's worked through all this, and he's put it in context, and he's at this point now that this is the prayer he offers. And why? And it's kind of weird because this prayer ends with, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This man has zero context until we read the very next line. For I was the king's cupbearer. There's a lot of parallels here between Esther and Nehemiah. But he sat for days mourning and working through this and has realized, I'm in a position to do something about this. I think the rest of the book at this point in Nia's mind is largely already laid out. That's just Tom's take on it. I think he's put together a plan. 
That's going to be very evident in what we're about to look at in chapter 2. But I think the plan goes way beyond what's about to happen in chapter 2. I think he's not, to get, not only put together a plan, but based on this prayer, which is largely about the people turning back to God and adhering to the law of Moses, we're going to see goes well into the activities after the walls are built and the city is restored. It's about restoring a priesthood. It's about restoring proper worship. It's about a lot more than simply going and taking these people out of their immediate physical danger. But he's got to do that first. So he's prioritized this list of what needs to happen. So he's the cupbearer. So clearly, I don't think he's throwing a pity party. I think he sat down and he got busy. He had to work through some stuff to get to that point. But after working through it, I think he sat down and immediately he was probably in distress. He was in tears. He did probably openly weep for these people and what they were going through. But after that, it's like, okay, well, so what? Am I just going to sit here and keep crying for him? What needs to happen? Well, in chapter 2, we're not going to read the whole book of Nehemiah today. But in chapter 2, And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, or excuse me, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, so there's that twentieth again. So this thing that he's in the 20th of, is the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. Okay? There's all kinds of fun stuff we could talk about there historically, about the stuff that Artaxerxes was doing, Xerxes before him, and everything that was going on. But at this point, um, as a side note, if I recall correctly, I didn't go through and double check all the timing, but Artaxerxes spent a lot of time, I hope I'm getting this right, feel free to correct me if I'm not, uh, battling folks down in Egypt. And so from the capital of Babylon, having a strong citadel in Jerusalem would do him well. And right now he has a city that should be a strong citadel that's in reproach and has been allowed waste. Artaxerxes wasted a lot of resources of Babylon fighting um, in Egypt trying to go up the Nile. If I recall correctly, he was ultimately stopped and was not horribly successful. All right. Continuing. When I was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king... Now, I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore, the king said to me, Why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. Okay, so now we know why he was asking for this prayer that mercy be shown before him. This is not a good position for the the servant of the king to be in. When a guy is as powerful as Artaxerxes, or Xerxes or any of the Babylonian kings, you don't want to be the guy that's bringing him down. But that's exactly what he notices. So I became dreadfully afraid. Why? Because he's two or three words away from death. If the king doesn't like what he hears. And I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. So he tells him. He starts a little flowery. He starts with, you know, O king. But let's be honest, that's how every address to the king started when he asked you a direct command. Daniel would do some similar things on a number of occasions. But he starts, and then he just tells him, well, this is why I'm distressed. It's the city I come from, the tombs of my father's. And I think it's interesting that he laid it out in a way that how would Artaxerxes feel if this was this, his city? What if this was this, this, what, English? 
What if this was the city with the tombs of his fathers? Well, it might be a little different with the Babylonians because they had a bad habit of um, trying to forget the previous kings to make themselves look better. But... All right, so this is huge. We cannot miss this because it's quite clear. Nehemiah was dreadfully afraid. But he had already made a plan. He had already petitioned God. And this whole exchange occurs because Nehemiah has already done his homework. There's an old saying, or not an old saying, there's a saying I've heard recently, and I've always heard it used on podcasts and stuff, usually in relation to like military stuff. Correct me if I get this wrong, Lewis, but it's that you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to the level of your training. Right? And I think here, it's the fact that he's already spent days and morning and thinking about this is the reason why, even though he's dreadfully afraid, Nehemiah's on autopilot. And he already knows exactly what the answer is going to be, which allows him to speak before the king, most likely far more boldly than he would have been able to, being dreadfully afraid, had the homework not been done. He isn't humbling, he isn't hemming and hawing, he lays it out there. Here's why. You know, Daniel did something very similar. Uh, in chapter 1, when Daniel's being carted off, um, huh, very similar situation in some ways, uh, we read that Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself with the king's meat. Right? So by the time the king's food was put before him, he had already made the decision that he wasn't going to eat it. And I think he'd probably already made the plan of, well, I'm going to see if the steward will let me do this instead and test us. Right? So he had already decided and made the decision. That applies even today. There are so many lessons and things around us that if we simply do the homework beforehand and make the decision, when you find yourself in the moment, it's no big deal at all. When I first started my career, I used to go every year, I think it was every other year, to Southern California. San Diego is an awesome place to visit. I don't want to live there. And there was a big conference that we would go to. It was a week-long there was a whole bunch of us that would go from the office I worked in. We'd go stay at this cool, really old hotel, downtown San Diego, restaurants all over the place. We'd go hang out at this conference, get to go see nerdy stuff, and then go eat good food. And the only thing better about that is somebody else paid the hotel, somebody else paid for the car, and we were given a per diem to eat on. So what more could you want? Right? The one problem with this conference was that it always occurred the same week as the World Series. Not a huge problem, but that meant the guys I'm traveling with wanted to go find some place to go watch the World Series. I'm like, okay, well, we'll go watch the World Series. But the only problem with that is these guys took that as an excuse to drink. So having already made the decision, nope, I'm not drinking, made it real easy when they came around and asked, nope, I'll have some tea. Nope, I'll just have a water. Not having made that decision, it would have been real easy to go, I'll have what he's having, just to fit in with all the other guys. And I'm there with you know, the branch chief for my customer. I'm there with all these people that are important and this is that quality one-on-one FaceTime to build a relationship. But if you don't decide ahead of time, you find yourself in that moment of weakness. Now, what I hadn't anticipated, Glenn, and this didn't happen until I think the second year we went, was that once they realized Tom doesn't drink, he becomes the designated driver. And all of a sudden at dinner one night, that kind of became the scheme was, oh, we'll just get Tom to drive. He doesn't drink anyway. The thought being, well, then they can drink even more and not worry about it. 
At which point I had to graciously remind them, that's true, I don't drink, and I am the one that drove to dinner tonight, um, but I don't babysit, and we're really close to the Mexican border. Suddenly that wasn't a problem, and they decided they probably should keep aware of their faculties instead of, because I was half joking, but try me. (laughs) So we made a decision ahead of time. Another term I've heard used for this is the idea of being default aggressive. That sounds really worse than it is, but the idea is don't just sit there and keep thinking about it. Nehemiah didn't sit there and say, well, I'll wait until I get more information. Maybe they were wrong. Maybe I went to a hill a little more. A lot of times people will put off making a decision or taking action because, well, there might be that one other little piece of information that I need, so I'm just going to hold off a little longer so I can make sure I really, really know what's going on before I, you know, potentially risk my neck by making a petition of the king or allowing myself to be seen as sad in front of him. Basically, he made a decision, got more information, made another decision, and just kept making smaller and smaller decisions. He didn't instantly storm in and petition the king. He waited until the time presented itself. But he was ready to take the next step. I have a, um, I've been using, I got to thinking about this the other night when I was finishing up these notes, and it's been nearly 30 years, which made me feel really old. But I have a planner I've been using since I was in high school. And on the bottom every day, it's a daily thing that you flip over. And at the bottom every day, it's got a quote. Sometime years, like probably 25 years ago, I got in this habit where the ones I like, I put a little star by them. And the ones then I, when I would go through and shuffle my calendar and swap the pages, they ended up in this huge Word file. So I have this like 75-page long Word file of just quotes I've run across. Most of them out of my planner that I like. But when I got to thinking about this, it reminded me of two of them. First one's from a gentleman, Anthony J. Thought is a prelude, prelude to and not an alternative to action. So it's good that Nehemiah sat down and thought about it, but he didn't stop with just thinking about it. I also heard one time, I don't know who said this, but people will say, uh, oh, what is it? Um, That idea will never work. Somebody's thought of that before. Yeah, but they only thought of it, right? People do that all the time with products. Oh, I've got this great idea. It's like, oh, I'm sure somebody's thought of that before. Oh, I'm sure they have, but all they did was think about it. Go actually build it. The other one that, that I was reminded of was one actually from Richard Nixon. He said, the man of thought who will not act is ineffective. The man of action who will not think is dangerous. And in Nehemiah, we see, we see someone who did both. Because as soon as the king asked, and it was there, in verse 4 we read, the king asked him, what do you request? Now Nehemiah just said why he was sad. But something made the king go, What do you request? If this is bothering you, if this is worrying you. Now this is one of those fleeting moments in the business world. People go, you just say yes and you figure out how to do it later, Glenn. Right? I'm bad at that. I'm an engineer. I go way too far down. Well, can I implement it? What if I do that? Like, what if I can't find an IC that does it this way? And what if that piece doesn't work? No. What do you request? And Nehemiah is ready with an answer. Stage one of his plan that he's thought out is right here. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Not that you rebuild the city, not that you send your great men, O wise king, who's all-powerful, but that you send me. In 
Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. He took his chance, he told him what he wanted, he had an actual plan. Furthermore, I said to the king, all right, now he's on a roll, right? If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river, that, I, that they may permit me to pass through till I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertain to the temple, for the city wall, and for the house that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me, according to the good hand of my God upon me. Then I went to the regions, then I went to the governors in the region beyond the rivers, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. Hold on. He asked for this, the king gave him this. Right? What's the whole reason why he wants to go build, rebuild Jerusalem? got no walls, it's got no gates. There's a lot more going on, but right now we're focused on walls and gates. We've got to secure the city before we worry about rebuilding the temple and restoring worship, right? So what's he asked for? Letters that I can pass through without harm and materials. The king says, done. Oh, and in addition, the whole reason you're going to rebuild the city is because it's easy to attack. I'm sending captains of the army and horsemen with you. Let's remember this is 25 years ago and he's sending horsemen. He's sending the best armor he has. It doesn't say he sent foot soldiers with me. He sent horsemen. We're talking fast attack vehicles. The F-22 of the day. A horseman. So he went to the governors, took them the letters. The king sent horsemen with him. Now, Sanballat and Tobiah, they're a lot of fun. We're going to talk about them some more before we get done, if we have time. We probably aren't going to have time. But let's just say these are the two guys. That's why he wanted the letters, to make sure he could pass through the regions without being afflicted. These guys like their position. They don't want Jerusalem to be powerful. So when he came to Jerusalem, he was there three days. He did a bunch of things. He went and looked at everything. He snuck out of the city. He looked at what was going on before he met with any of the leaders there. And then we get to this next principle that we see in Nehemiah. Because he shows up and he doesn't sit there and start with look what you've done to the city, look what you've let happen, you've denied God, look at all, all these other things that have happened. Look at verse 17. Then he said to them, you, you see the distress that we are in. You get that? He just showed up. He's been there three days. And he describes their distress as his distress. You see the, you see the distress that we are in. How Jerusalem lies waste, its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hands of, of my, uh, and I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that they had spoken to me. So it's interesting, though, when we look at this, the direct quotes here of what he said to them, it's we. He's casting his lot with theirs. When he fills in the other stuff, and it's just described, he talks about how. He'd been praying to God about this. He talks about the good favor he'd gotten from the king. But then this ends with another direct quote from them. So they said, let us 
rise up and build. They're with them. Then they set their hands to the good work. It's amazing what happens when you build a team that's actually all working towards the same goal. It's amazing. I've really only seen it once in my entire career. I had taken a position of a team that, quite frankly, was burned out. They had a lot going on. They were victims of their own success, right? They had managed to have way more work than they could actually get done. But because of that, they were burned out, and they were dealing with a boss that was very much a you, you, you kind of guy. Every interaction I had with them, when I suddenly became the middleman between them and the upper management in this company, it was you, you, you. Every conversation I had was, you need to do this, then you need to go do that, and then you need to go take care of this person over here. Every conversation. I tried to make sure that every time I talked to that team, it was, hey, what do we need to do? Now, most of that was because I had no clue what to do. I was in a new industry. I, was, I mean, I knew just enough to be dangerous, right? But once they realized I was willing to admit that, and I said, what do we need to do? It was amazing what happened. I will never forget, you know, I, I set a pretty simple rule early because this was not happening anywhere in the management. If, if anybody had to stay late, I stayed late too. If anybody had to come in and work on a weekend, I came in and worked on the weekend too. And we were there one Saturday and we had somehow pulled this miracle. My team had yet again surprised me and we had some stuff that we could ship that I wasn't expecting. And they said, hey, we just got to get the quality engineer to look at this and we're good to go. Great, no problem. Where is he? I'm not sure. Picked up my phone, called his cell phone. Hey, we got this done early. I wasn't expecting it. Can you come by and take a look at this? His words to me, yeah, no problem. I just stepped out to grab some lunch. I'll be right there. Okay, no worries. It was about lunchtime. That made perfect sense. I had zero issues with this whatsoever. I found out the following Monday, he came in, got the stuff done. We shipped it. It's great. Whole team wins, right? Because we got this thing done. We weren't expecting it. Found out the following Monday, this was in Madison. He was halfway back to Florence. The stuff that he came back and looked at wasn't on the schedule, wasn't on our plan to ship. He had done everything that he needed to do. He really had gone out to get a bite to eat, but was eating that food. And what he didn't tell me was he was on the other side of Rogersville. And he turned around and he came all the way back and took care of that just so that we could ship it. Think he ever asked me for time off and didn't get it again? But it's amazing when a team's working in the right direction. Easiest thing in the world, and what probably would have happened six months earlier with what I walked into there was, sorry man, I already left. We'll have to ship it Monday. But what we see from Nehemiah here is that he has pulled a team together that is instantly going, we, we, we. And he did that by casting his lot with him. He didn't say, I'm separate and you need to go fix this. There's a lesson there for us. So we're not going to have time to walk through all the stuff I'd love to in chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a master class in what's usually called um, decentralized command or a complete lack of micromanaging. Because Nehemiah, when they actually get busy, he didn't say to the people of Jerusalem, all right, we'll send all your workers over here to me and I'll form them up in groups and we'll go out and we'll start here on the wall and we'll start working that way and we'll see when we get it done. That's not what he did. He goes through this huge description and let's look at a small section of it starting in 28. Beyond the horse gate, the priest made repairs, each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emir, made repairs in front of his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Seshani, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. The keeper of the gate made the repairs to the gate. 
After him, Hanani, the son of Shimei and Huan, the sixth son of Zaphath, repaired another section. After him, Mushan, the son of Bisha, made repairs in front of his own dwelling. What's he doing? He's dividing up the work and giving it to the people that care the most about that piece of work getting done. And what we don't have recorded here is these long lists that he told him exactly how to do it, exactly how he wanted it done. He didn't say, look, you have to work from this time to that time and we're only taking breaks here and don't you dare give that guy a day off because we have to work until this is done. He said, no, you get it done. And you worry about the part that's right there in front of you. This is the part that's important to you. You take care of this piece. This piece is in front of you. It's right here. It's in front of your dwelling. All right, you know what? I don't care how you do it, but you take this piece, that's yours. And guess what happens? All of a sudden, you want your piece to look a little better than Lewis's piece over here. And so you think Lewis's piece of the wall looks good, and you see his good idea, you go, hey, I'm going to do that too. And what do you end up with? A way better wall than if Nehemiah starts at one and it says, nope, here's how we're going to do it, I'm going to do it my way. He's got everybody in this town that has a vested interest in Jerusalem working on rebuilding Jerusalem. There's a great lesson there for us. He didn't try to do it all. He divided it out, and he said, hey, get it done. And then he let him do it. The next thing I want to talk about here is another principle. is an idea that, all right, Lewis, this is another one of those military ones. It's often called cover and move, right? Because we see that's what's going on here. So the idea in the military, police do this too, is it's the idea of, hey, we've got a problem going on here. The enemy's over here. So these guys are going to cover. We're going to watch. We're going to, I don't know if it's really bad. We're going to lay down suppressive fire. We're going to make sure their heads are down. We're going to watch for you while you move to the next safe place. And then once you get there and you're safe, you're going to watch for these guys so they can go to the next place, Right? Because remember, there's this little issue with Tobiah and Samballot. They're not real happy about the city regaining strength. Chapter 4, verse 16. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders that were behind the the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction, while with the other hand they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people that worked in this great, their work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whether you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us here, our God will fight for us. So they labored and worked. And half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. And the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes except that everyone took them off for washing. He had their backs. You've got to build. We need to put a plan in place. We're not going to allow them to attack us while we're building this. They don't want this to happen. They're doing everything they can to stir up our enemies and stop us from fortifying this city. Now, the idea of cover and move works way, as Andrew Griffith would say, yonder beyond just military examples. It applies all over the place. I mentioned that if anybody had to stay late, I stayed late. If we were working on Saturdays, I would go. Why? What was I doing? Quite frankly, I was probably being in the way more than anything. But if somebody needed something done, guess what? That's what I did. I remember one Saturday, the poor guy running the wash. This place, we assembled circuit boards. And the guy running the wash, that's a thankless job. 
Because it's one of those where if you bring the board back and it's clean, well, you didn't do it, the machine did it. But if there's something wrong or knocked off or if something hits in there or a board moves around too much and a a part gets knocked off and it lifts the pad and potentially ruins the board, well, now that's your fault. Even though the machine did it, it's your fault. I washed a lot of boards because that poor guy caught grief like you wouldn't believe. There was always a way. I mean, I say that as an example because that's the one that I know, but I watched the same thing happen everywhere else. It was amazing. All of a sudden, you get backed up at a connector solder station. The touch-up person's done. All of a sudden, they're over there helping solder connectors. Those same two people get done, and the inspector's backed up. All of a sudden, they're going and relieving other people out in a different part of the company because they can't inspect their own work, but then those people can come help the inspector and get other stuff done. It was amazing. They would cover for each other. And the last one is, in chapter 6, we see where Sam Ballot and Tobiah come up with a scheme and they try to blackmail Nehemiah. They basically say, hey, we're going to go tell the king what you're doing in here, that you're fortifying the city to set yourself up as king. All right? And then they basically kind of feign an attack to try to get him to actually hold up in the temple and show that he's closed himself up in the city and set himself as a king and a ruler. That's a really big paraphrase. Don't worry, James will do a better job. But in 6 verse 11, we read, Nehemiah's response is that he said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. He wasn't scared of the lie. Now, I think there's a really good reason for this that I cannot believe Tobiah and Sanballat were overlooking. Who did the king send that Nehemiah never asked for? Captains of his army... And horsemen. Pretty sure the king already knew what was going on in Jerusalem. I'm also pretty well convinced that if Nehemiah had actually been trying to set himself up as a king to somehow challenge the authority of the king, Nehemiah wouldn't have been working there very long. Either at the hands of those men or by direct word from the king when he found out about it. So he didn't fear the threats and the allegations that these others were hurling because he already knew what he was doing was exactly what he said he could do. This reminded me of another one of those quotes on my list, Lewis. You can discover what your enemy fears most by observing the means he uses to frighten you. Eric Hoffer. So let's go back and look at some of these, because I ran through a whole bunch of stuff. But let's look at these actual principles that we're going to see throughout Nehemiah over and over again that I don't want to get lost in the history and the story as we're looking at them in the coming weeks. Nehemiah had a genuine concern for others. Formulate and prioritize a plan, which he did. You'll see through the rest of this. Once they get the walls built, he then moves on to getting the priesthood back in order. He goes on to reading the law. He goes back to restoring worship. He has the whole thing worked out, but he's already formulated a plan, and he knows what order they have to be done in. If he showed up and started complaining about the priest, nobody would have cared because they're getting attacked every night. Don't just think, but be ready to act. Default aggressive or action, if you will. Don't try to do it all yourself. Work with your team. The idea of decentralized command. Let the team develop their own plan. That gives them ownership to make sure it gets done and done well. Cover and move. If you're not working, you're making sure the others can. And live above reproach so you don't have to fear the lie. 
Next week, we'll have a real introduction into Nehemiah. I appreciate your attention, and I hope you're looking forward to this uh, quarter study as much as I am. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.